For my pericope, or if you will, my preaching text this morning, I take from verse 13 of the chapter of 24th of Matthew, which we've just read. Matthew 24, verse 13, where we read, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Jordan with me this morning. Every Sunday again we celebrate Christ's glorious resurrection and subsequent ascension into heaven and we marvel that it all happened on our behalf. And we hear that glorious message in one form or another every Sunday. And we're even reminded of that message visibly in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And through the preaching of the Word of God and through our use of the sacraments, our faith is strengthened. And then we go home confident, encouraged, hopeful, and optimistic about the future. But nothing seems to change. We celebrate Christ's victory every Sunday, but his conquest doesn't seem to have much of an impact on the world in which we live. Instead of seeing Christ's victory over this world in which we live, instead we see our world sinking ever deeper into spiritual and moral decay and corruption. And to our sin-darkened minds and our eyes, it would appear that Christ's victory was of little consequence. In fact, an undiscerning reader of the Bible would conclude that to be the case already immediately after the resurrection there in Palestine several thousand years ago. If you read the narrative without the eyes of spiritual discernment, then here, there really wasn't much evidence of a victory after Easter. In fact, the opposite seems to be true. Immediately after his ascension, his disciples were persecuted. Many of them died a martyr's death, and that, and that persecution of the church has continued all through history. And, and what makes it all the more frightening is that Christ himself warned us that it would be so. It's still so today. As we walk the road of life from this world into the next world, life is often perplexing, difficult, and even painful. Oh, indeed, we confess and believe that we are always under the watchful eye of the Good Shepherd, but oftentimes we are confronted with circumstances that seem to belie the fact of Christ's authority. The Word of God reminds us of our obligation to, in all circumstances, to wait upon the Lord and to trust in the Word of the Lord, But such trusting and such waiting and such following does not come naturally nor easily for us. As we weave our way through the complexities of life on this earth, we are constantly coming to crossroads. And frequently the way ahead is uncertain. We are constantly being confronted with situations making it necessary for us to make choices. But we're not always so sure which way to go. Satan whispers in our ear, come with me, follow me, loosen up a little bit, compromise a little bit. Don't be so antiquated and old-fashioned. The things you believed, you used to believe, just won't work in this modern age, man. 
You've got to move with the times. And indeed, we see the sights that dazzle and, and we're so tempted, even with all of the best of intentions, we are so tempted to allow ourselves to be led astray. But then if we listen carefully at each of those <laughs> crossroads on our path, then we, if we listen carefully, we also hear that still small voice saying, this is the way, follow me, and it will go well with you in the land of the living. Trouble is, oftentimes that way pointed out by that inner voice doesn't seem like the right way to us. We hear the voice. We even know the voice. But the direction that that voice points us to doesn't make logical sense to us, making it all the more difficult to follow in blind, trusting faith. It doesn't seem right to us, and, 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 and we're at least initially reluctant to follow. And in our text of this morning, we see that the disciples were faced with a very similar situation. Jesus begins to explain the way ahead to them, and it conflicts with everything they had ever understood about their future, and yet Jesus insists that they will follow to him, follow him even though they don't understand. And now our text speaks of these things, and I want to minister God's word to you this morning using as my theme, persevering until Christ returns. Persevering until Christ returns. We want to learn that such persevering is difficult, and then we will see that such persevering is glorious. Persevering until Christ returns, it's difficult, but also it's glorious. You know the story. We read most of it together this morning. Shortly before his final humiliation on Golgotha, Jesus speaks to his disciples of the things that must come to pass. Things will happen, says Jesus. Things will happen that will bring much tension and strife, and the disciples must have sensed something ominous in those words, especially in the way Jesus bids farewell to the holy city. Just prior to the passage that we read this morning, Jesus surveys the holy city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often have I not wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is desolate. And disciples, they listened to that prophecy of Jesus, and they probably wondered what it all meant. And then as they begin to leave the city, the disciples point out the majesty of that glorious temple. They see her standing there in all her glory, sparkling and gleaming in the eastern sun. And their hearts are troubled at the words of Jesus. They marvel at the glory of Jerusalem. But in the context of what Christ had just said, they now begin to wonder, will it really be as Jesus said? That thought seems inconceivable to them. And Jesus, knowing their troubled hearts, makes it even plainer. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, Jesus wants them to know of the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jerusalem, including the temple, will be reduced to rubble. But 
that was not at all what the disciples had expected. Remember now, they too were of the Jewish race. They were products of their culture, and from that perspective, they could not imagine life without their holy city and its stately temple. Jerusalem was not simply the capital city. It was much more. It was the holy city. The temple was God's own house. It was the place of God's presence. Jerusalem and the temple, they were places of great significance to the Jews. Read once the Psalms and, and listen to the recurring theme of the psalmist as they long for the house of the Lord. Has the heart about to falter in its trembling agony? Panteth for the brooks of water, so my soul doth pant for thee. Yea, a thirst for thee I cry, God of life, oh, when shall I come again to stand before thee in thy temple and adore thee? Read the history of the Israelites as they, as they sat by Babel's streams and wept over their captivity and they, they longed for Jerusalem. So too for Daniel as three times a day he turned to God in prayer facing Jerusalem. That's why the, 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 the God's, whole, God's holy city is still so today. Jerusalem still holds great significance for the Jews and that's why they won't share it with the Palestinians. Today, the world leaders are urging Israel to divide Jerusalem, split it in two and share it with Hamas, with the Palestinians. That's the way to peace in the east, says the world. But Israel will not hear of it. Jerusalem was built by the Jews already in Bible times. It's a uniquely Jewish city having significance for the Jewish religion. And, and, and for the Jews, it would be a sacrilege to give even a part of it to, a, to another nation. And so the disciples began to question, have we got that right, Lord? Will God let all of this go? Indeed, says Christ, and what's more, understand well, the catastrophe that will befall Jerusalem will only be the beginning. In fact, the falling of the temple will be the beginning of the destruction of the entire world. My dear congregation, we can almost imagine the perplexity in the hearts of that little band of disciples. The disciples are confused. They understand that all of this prophecy of the Lord must have something to do with the, with the return of the Lord. And now they ask him for a sign. When will this be, Lord? How can we know? And Jesus does not answer their question directly. He teaches them that many things must first come to pass. He speaks of wars and rumors of wars. He speaks of kingdoms rising up against kingdoms and nations against nations. And he speaks of famines and pestilence and earthquakes and all of these things, says Jesus. All of these things are just the beginning of sorrows. After those beginnings, things will get even worse, says Jesus. There will be great tribulation. Many will be killed for the faith. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Many will be offended and will hate one another. And still it will get worse. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And all these things will take place before the Son of Man returns. And now pay close attention with me now. That great tribulation that awaits this earth before the second coming of our Lord does not exclude the gathering work of Christ building his church, for that too will continue. 
But the point of Jesus here in this passage is that the coming of the kingdom will be by way of great sorrow, tribulation, and persecution. In other words, Jesus will continue to gather, defend, and to preserve his church, but it will be by way of pain and sorrow. And in that context, now the words of Christ of our text, but he who endures to the end will be saved. People thought it's not hard to imagine that for the disciples, the words of Jesus must have felt like a blow of a sledgehammer catching them right between their eyes. This is not the way it's supposed to go, Lord. This is not the way it's supposed to end, Lord. Oh, how they had fantasized about the glorious future they would have with Jesus when he established his throne on earth in Jerusalem in the temple. Jesus was going to be their king. Jesus was going to save them from the hated Romans. And they had envisioned a majestic kingdom and a glorious future with Jesus as their king. And in fact, they were arguing among themselves as to who would have the most prominent place in his new government. Oh, how confused and devastated they must have been to now learn that not only would that not be so, but instead the city and the temple would be ruined. That's not right, Lord. That's not the way it's supposed to go, Lord. But my dear people, God, capture this with me. The same confusion and rude awakening awaits us if we think that the life of the Christian is one of peace and harmony and glory until that last great day of the Lord. Many people believe and even teach that, you know. Most televangelists you see preaching to the masses in their crystal cathedrals on on your television sets, they present a a kind of name-it-and-claim-it Christianity, meaning that if only you will accept the Lord, then everything's going to be going your way. You have no doubt heard of what has become known as the prosperity gospel. You can hear that theme from most televangelists and modern mainline churches. But people of God, according to the scripture, that's not the gospel. And if we are not well informed about what the Bible actually says, about what actually awaits us in this life, then we too will find ourselves unprepared for the great difficulties that will certainly confront us in this life, even if not especially as Christians. Congregation, if we are somewhat familiar with our Bibles, then we're not completely surprised that the life of the Christian is marked by difficulty. We know of the great conflict that faced Israel all of her history, and that conflict culminated in that atrocity of Golgotha. How bitterly they had cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You remember that scene. So much hatred against him filled their hearts that they were even willing to have the guilt of his death spill over onto their children. Crucify him. His blood be upon us and our children, they cried. But such sinfulness in the world has got to have consequences. It will not be possible that men and women can so spurn the grace of God and remain unaffected or go unpunished. And so God begins to pour out his wrath upon Jerusalem. After all, as Jesus had just said, Jerusalem was the city that stoned the prophets and rejected the Messiah. And that rejection of the Son of God has consequences. 
It is as the psalmist writes, the sorrows of the wicked in number shall abound. And that is precisely what we have seen and what we continue to see also in our own world. There has been a wholesale abandonment of the Lord by the nations. And there shall be no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Our own world has become not only secular, but in fact it has become so corrupt that there remains so very little of the sacred in the public arenas. The gospel has gone out into all the world, but for the most part it has been rejected and the prophets were stoned and and the missionaries that were sent were killed. And as a consequence, although mankind dreams of peace and prosperity, instead he sees tragedy, catastrophe, anguish, fear, pain, misery, terror, and abounding sorrow. And all of it because of a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God pours out his anger, not only upon Jerusalem, but upon the entire wicked world. But although God begins to pour out his wrath upon the unbelieving world, the church of Jesus Christ is not left unscathed. We need to understand that. The saints of Christ, although not of this world, they are still in this world, and they will suffer with the world because of their close proximity to the world. Pay close attention. In the context of our text, God used the hated Romans to destroy the city of Jerusalem as God's judgment upon those who rejected the Christ and stoned the prophets. But there were still pious, godly saints who also lived in Jerusalem, And they too would suffer and even die along with the ungodly. And it's still so today. As ungodliness increases, as our world sinks ever deeper into moral degeneracy, and as men and women stray ever further from the Lord, or to say it as Christ did in our text, because wickedness abounds, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, in other words, as we move closer and closer to the end times, As the world more and more rejects the gospel, lawlessness will increase and life will become ever more difficult for the Christian. That's what we are to expect. But persevere, says the Lord, for he who endures to the end will be saved. Think with me now what that perseverance, that endurance must have meant for those disciples there in Palestine. Jesus had just told them of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That was unthinkable to them. He had warned them of the great tribulation that would follow. That was unexpected for them. He had alerted them to the fact that the great catastrophes would take place because of the world's rejection of the Christ and that Christians as well as non-Christians would suffer because of that sin. Jesus had said that the people of God would suffer along with the people of the world because of their proximity to them. And Jesus reminded them that all of this suffering was because of the world's hatred for the gospel and their rejection of him who stood at the center of that gospel. Christ had already assured them that the world would hate them because they had hated him. And all of that would have slowly begun to sink into the greatly troubled minds of those disciples. And now in just a little while, 
Jesus would gather them around himself again. And in this deeply troubling context, he would instruct them with those most terrifying words. Go, be my witnesses into all the world. Not only into Jerusalem, not only into Judea, but go into all the world with that message of salvation. People of God, if those disciples harbored any thought at all that they would be able to escape the tribulation because they belonged to the Lord, Jesus had just torn the carpet out from under their feet. Jesus called them out of complacency and into militancy. Jesus is sending them out, commanding them to preach. But understand this with me. He called them to preach the very message which had provoked the world's anger. They were to go out into all the world and they were to carry with them and boldly proclaim the precise thing that had provoked the world's anger and hatred, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation. If I may say it this way, Jesus essentially was placing a target on their back and he was sending them out into the firing range as sheep among the wolves. Can you even imagine the turmoil that must have reverberated in the minds of these disciples as they walked with him out of Jerusalem on that day? But, 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 he who endures to the end will be saved. It must have seemed inconceivable to them. It's almost as if Jesus was playing games with them. It's as if he was mocking them. The world hates me, so they will hate you. They will persecute you. They will smoke you out of your holes. You cannot run. You may not hide. In fact, you are to stand up boldly and make it widely known who you are by boldly preaching the Christ whom they hated and killed. And then he sums it all up by saying, and if you endure to the end, then you will be saved. But Now understand well with me. For if we do not read with discernment, then it would seem that Christ places their eternal destiny in their own hands. That is what we hear. If I was to paraphrase, we could say that Jesus says, if you endure to the end, then you will be saved. So it's up to you. But that's not so. We know better. If we were, if it were left up to us to earn our salvation, There would be no hope, but praise be to God. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift to be received with a believing heart. Man can do absolutely nothing towards his own salvation. And yet, and yet, God does give us a task to do. You see, God forbids that we become little more than spectators in the bleachers as he works out his plan of salvation. God forbids that we sit on our laurels simply waiting for that final day when Christ will return. That was the error of the Thessalonians, you will remember. Uh, they knew that Christ would return and they expected him momentarily and, and they essentially put their lives on hold in anticipation. But they had seriously misunderstood and Paul corrects them, rebukes them. No, no, no one knows the hour or the day And while waiting to be translated to glory in the church triumphant, Christ calls us to Christian warfare in the church militant. If we are to be saved, it must be by God's free grace. 
but without Christian endurance and perseverance, no one will see the Lord. Let's once again turn to Psalter Hymn 169. I'll use stanzas 6 through 9 this time. 6 through 9 of 161. My dear brothers and sisters, just before we broke to sing, I alerted you to the fact that if we are to be saved, it must be by God's free grace. We need to remember that. But without Christian commitment, endurance, and perseverance, no one will see the Lord. And now, people of God, gird up the loins of your mind for a few minutes and continue to follow closely. When we now speak of persevering, then it is in this context that Jesus is first of all referring to that great tribulation that will confront Christians in particular and Christianity in general, especially as we move closer and closer to the end times. And when Jesus says that we must persevere, he promises that it is God who perseveres in us, but at the same time he insists of us that we use the means given us to preservation. You see, God promises to equip us for the battle. God promises to give us to give us the ability and the strength and the courage to persevere even while living in a world drowning in a sea of perversity. Oh, indeed, Christian perseverance is a gift from God, but we need to understand how that gift is received. For instance, if you're expecting a letter by regular snail mail, it will do you no good to stand and wait by your email box. You'll never receive it that way. The same is true here. God gives us his grace, but he gives it via means, and now ours is the obligation to faithfully use those means. A Heidelberg Catechism sums it so beautifully, so eloquently in Lord's Day 45, where the question is asked, why does a Christian need to pray? Answer, because God gives his grace and holy... Listen carefully. God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly asking God for those gifts. Did you catch that? God gives his grace only to those who pray asking for it. How are we to persevere then? Through prayer, first of all. Well, then let me ask you, is it your habit to spend much time in prayer? Do you constantly pray? Do you groan inwardly, pleading with God daily for his grace and his Holy Spirit to equip you? Do you beg of him the necessary gifts to stand strong in the face of the hatred of the world? When, when life becomes hard, is it your habit, your practice, your heart's desire to press hard to God's altar in prayer? Do you, do you pound on heaven's door, imploring God for the necessary grace to persevere in this dark and dying world? And if your honest answer is no, do you still expect to receive it? You're at the wrong mailbox. It won't happen. He doesn't send his gifts via your perceived notions. No, indeed, he promises to give his gifts, but only in his way. And his way of granting those gifts, his way of granting his grace, 
persevering grace is by way of the pleadings of his people in ardent, fervent prayer. But also he gives his children the necessary grace and the strength via the word and the sacraments. And in particularly as that word is preached in the congregation from Sunday to Sunday. My dear precious people of God, I never tire of telling anyone who will hear me that something happens during the official preaching of the word of God in the church that happens nowhere else in the same way. I will go further. You will not, you cannot leave this place today in the same way as which you entered it. Every time the word of God comes to you, it demands your response. Even to not respond, to simply let it go over you, is a response, but it's a response in disobedience and unfaithfulness. So let me ask you then, if the world situation and the future, and your own future in the world situation, if it frightens you or concerns you, do you, do you, do you hunger for the word of God to strengthen you? Let me put it in easier terms. How important, how precious is the living preaching of the word of God to you? Or how precious are the Sunday services to you? Can you hardly wait for them from week to week? And, or will you be back? for the second service this afternoon as we continue the worship service. My dear precious people of God, if we're going to face the future with confidence, we need to check our spiritual resources. How much time do you spend in the Word? How eagerly is the Word and sacraments received by you? How much time do you spend in prayer? How is it with your personal and family devotions? People God, is there not a real danger, even for us, that we fail to adequately use the particular means of grace that God gives us to prepare us for the great tribulation that we and our children will experience as we see the end times approaching? Is there not a real danger that because of our own complacency, our own lukewarmness and neglect in spiritual matters, that we will not have the wherewithal to endure? And then what? For without it you cannot be saved. For Jesus has just told us that those who endure to the end, they will be saved. Congregation, how it will all go in our life is unknown and uncertain, and yet this much stands firm. If we persevere using the God-given means of receiving the necessary grace to do so, then God perseveres in us, and God preserves us to the end. Oh, we admit that the life of the Christian can yet be very difficult. Think of what this all must have meant for those disciples as Jesus explains what will happen to Jerusalem and the temple and to their world. And from Scripture and from the church history, we know how greatly these men suffered. James was murdered. Peter was miraculously released from prison, but also later also killed for his faith. Stephen was stoned. John was banished to Patmos. And, and what about the persecution and the imprisonment of Paul? 
And yet, and yet, and yet, in all of their struggles, they went out speaking boldly of the Christ. And when they suffered persecution, when they stared certain death in the face, they responded by singing of the mercies of the Lord. Capture this with me. For all outward appearances, uh, humanly speaking, the lives of, the, of, of these disciples seem to be uh, one of great, of great waste. All of their lives, tension, heartbreak, disappointment, and persecution. All of their lives they suffered for the gospel, being chased out of almost every town they visited. And then, and then finally at the end of their lives, no retirement plan, no comfortable pension, only a martyr's death. Their backs to stripes, their tongues to be cut out, their very lives to the fire as martyrs. But, 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 despite the pain, through the power of the Holy Spirit granted them via their prayers, they were able to say triumphantly, I have fought the good fight, I have run the race, I have, I have endured to the end, and I consider my earthly suffering a small price that I gladly pay for that gift of that crown of righteousness that is laid away and kept safe for me in eternity. Ah, my dear people of God, with the songwriter we sing, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me of weary ways or golden days before his face. I say, how true, how difficult those weary ways can be. How often would we not like things to be different in our lives? Sometimes we fear that our lives just won't turn out as we had it planned We had, for example, made all these glorious plans. We had dreams and visions of a long and a glorious future. Our life was busy and harried and sometimes uncomfortable. But we had planned and expected and looked forward to a pleasant retirement. And suddenly things went so very much different than we had planned. And now all of our plans for our future, all of our dreams have fallen through our fingers and they lay shattered at our feet. Or sometimes sickness interrupts our lives, either our own or that of a precious loved one, an illness, an illness perhaps that will not be cured. That's not the way it's supposed to go, Lord. My plans were so different, Lord. We looked forward to a cure. I expected health and life and happiness, but it's all going so different than I had planned. And it's all so difficult and painful. I have a family, Lord. I have a husband, Lord, a wife and children that need me, Lord. How's that all going to go with them now, Lord? This isn't right, Lord. Or what about when a pandemic interrupts not only our lives, but the lives of untold people in the entire world? What about when the restrictions are placed upon us by the government, when they affect our ability to worship as a congregation, as was our custom in the past? What about when we lose our jobs, our business, our education, our career, all because of it? Or what about the brokenness in this world, brokenness in our families, even within our own marriages, tension and brokenness between husbands and wives, parents and children? What about the moral degeneracy all around us? What about the wholesale abandonment of Christianity in the world and in our nation? And what about the threat of global terrorism? Oh, rightly did Jesus say, when the Son of Man returns, will there be any faith left on this earth? But close to his breast, sheltering under the wings of the Almighty, all is and remains well. You're able to say, it is well with my soul. I'll capture this with me from our text. Jesus was walking out of Jerusalem. And with his disciples, he speaks of the 
impending destruction of that temple and that city. We could almost envision them riveting their eyes on, on Jerusalem's pride, the temple. That temple, they, as they were great sorrow, they, they thought about what Jesus was saying. That city was their home. That temple was the epicenter of their entire spiritual life. And Jesus tells them it would be reduced to rubble. How could they go on? Their material well-being and their spiritual well-being would be ripped out from under them. It was inconceivable to them. That's not right, Lord. You've got that wrong. But, but, but capture this with me now. As devastated as those disciples were about the destruction of the temple, it would be a great blessing for them. Oh, they would not have understood that as yet, but that temple had to be destroyed to make way for the new dispensation. The temple was still the Old Testament center of worship for the disciples, and that had to change. The time was coming and now is where they were to worship in spirit and in truth with Christ at the center, not the temple. That idol temple had to be removed, and God saw to it that it was. The Romans destroyed it some 70 years later. People of God, the same is true for us, if only we will see it. Still so many idols need to be torn down in our own lives. So many idols have been built by us, and the more precious those earthly temporal things become to us, the more necessary it is for the Lord to take them away for our good, our eternal good. The more we are called to suffer, the more we stand to lose, the, the greater the pain, the more anxious our concerns about the future, the fiercer the persecution for righteousness' sake, the closer we are driven to seeking shelter under the heart of God. Is our turmoil in life then not a good thing if that's the consequence? My precious, precious saints gathered here with me in Jordan. Life is hard, often painful. <laughs> life is filled with perplexing questions, the answers to which are known only to God. And on occasion, the pain and the sorrow that confront us as we weave our way through human life can bring us to despair. But, but, but be of good courage. All of our suffering on earth, hear me well. If you take nothing else home with you this morning, take this. All of our suffering on earth is designed by your Father in heaven to create in you a longing for eternal rest, a longing for that time and that place where time and tears shall be no more. Christ has fed us by his word and spirit again this day. What will you do with it? He has stood before you and he has extended the gospel invitation. He has strengthened us for that journey to that new Jerusalem. For some, that journey might be very short. For some, perhaps, this is the last sermon they will ever hear on this earth. For others, there may still be a long way to go. But long or short, 
the road is often uphill, rocky, painful, and even dangerous. But if you have heard the voice of your Savior this morning, then with me, your heart and your soul are overwhelmed with peace, knowing that he who has begun his good work in you will never abandon the work of his hands. Shall we pray?